Hey there, welcome to SaaS Unbound, brought to you by SaaS Group. I'm your host, Anna Dana, and this is the show where we chat with inspiring founders and experts to get an inside scoop on how they made their business a success. And today with me is Alex, co-founder of Corley, a monetization growth engine that provides a suite of tools to help subscription companies increase conversions and revenue while reducing churn. They're the winners of Sawstock USA 2023 Global Pitch Competition and are actively working on solving pricing challenges for SaaS companies worldwide. So happy to see you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me and, uh, you know, applause. That was a mouthful. Well done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Well, and first things first, let's, let's get to your background a little bit. Like, how did you start this thing in the first place? Definitely. Um, so my background has basically always been about monetization and pricing. I did my graduate work in it. I went and did two separate stints at a pricing-focused consultancy. Uh, first one was for about four years, doing everything from chemicals, fast food, manufacturing, all pricing. Then I took a hiatus from consulting to go run pricing and go to market at a company called Segment uh, before they got acquired by Twilio. And then after that, went back into consulting to focus exclusively on kind of early and growth stage SaaS companies. Did that for a few more years and then uh, wound up basically leaving the world of consulting to try and figure out if there were more productizable ways of solving some of these monetization problems. And in that process, met my now co-founders and uh, Coralie was born. Okay, thank you. Well, and uh, I, I started researching about the tool and pricing is just like every time we talk about pricing on the podcast everyone's like oh can we just not talk about it because it's just it's dreadful everyone's like whether afraid of it or you know uh, haven't been doing it since the birth of the company there are those examples as well and it's like always is it going to take us to the next level or are we going to die kind of situation so and you decided that okay i'll just get there <laughs> um and that's fascinating so Tell me more, like what Coralie is doing and how you're solving this this whole pricing hiatus for other SaaS companies. Definitely. And and can definitely echo the sentiment. I think it's the number one thing that I talk to people about, obviously. And it's never a, for me, it's always a great conversation. I love it. I'm an absolute nerd about it. But uh, no one really loves talking about pricing aside from me. So definitely, definitely hear that. I think from a Coralie standpoint, there's always, and you know, you, you can say this with most topics, but there's in business, you have the strategy of something and then you have the execution and the operations. And I think there's great resources out there if you want to learn strategically what to do with your pricing, right? Whether that's books, blogs, consulting firms publish things every single day, like it's great. Where a lot of people fall short is on actually being able to execute that strategy. And so one of the things we really wanted to dig into was to build a tool that let people just be more flexible and easy with their pricing changes. Whether that was, you know, we we're going to roll out our product in a new country and it's like, oh, well, we have to adapt our currency. We have to adapt how we're showing our pricing. We have to think about, you know, do they think about the value the same way there? Should we charge like the same baseline price, even if it's a different currency, like how much, blah, blah. All of those things that you wind up having to think about actually are quite painful to execute, whether it's like a bunch of billing engineering coding that you have to do to like make your systems work, et cetera. So we wanted to make that super, super easy. That's really where it started. And then 
it kind of grew from there into a space of being able to, well, how do you know what the right price is? Well, like you can do a bunch of research, which is the super common answer. You know, if you have a lot of customers, you have a lot of data, like why not just try it and see what happens, right? And so you get into that kind of test and iterate approach. And so we wanted to make that super easy. And so that's a lot of where our kind of monetization, kind of optimization engine comes from. Um, just being able to run really easy price experiments. Uh, and it's kind of grown from there, right? Like now we do experiments on what your pricing looks like, what your packaging is like, where your features sit. We help you optimize your discounting structure on different offerings. We help you build and design your pricing page. And so it's all of these things that like are always the afterthought strategically. It's like, oh yeah, we're going to have a new pricing page. It's going to have this call to action. I was like, well, how do we actually do that? Now we got to spend like six months trying to figure that out. It's like, well, no, now you can just do that with two buttons. And that's kind of where we wanted to get to. And that's really what the impetus behind all of it was. And yeah, it's been really interesting because, you know, I've been doing pricing for basically a decade. And you kind of think that there are certain things that you've like, all right, we've learned everything. Like now let's just implement and execute. And you still like every customer I talk to has like a new, unique version of a challenge. So it's, yeah, very, very interesting to kind of figure those out with them. Yeah. Okay. All right. So how do you, uh, how did you find your ideal customer? Because I think like the total addressable market, it, it seems at least huge, right? Everyone wants to figure out their pricing, like what to do, but, uh, who are you focusing on? Definitely. So, uh, you are completely correct. And honestly, like being completely transparent, that was a big problem of ours is that you know, it's not super obvious who you go after first because everyone has to set up. If you sell something, you have to set a price on it. So that's great from a TAM standpoint, but when you actually, you know, you're a startup, you have to focus. And so we thought a lot about this and we were like, well, we know we wanted to work on for SaaS companies because that's unique. There are other pricing software companies out there, but they're very focused on like physical goods, manufactured goods, things like that. So we know we wanted, um, we knew we wanted to work with software companies. And then the next thing for us is that we really wanted to build and train an intelligent model to work on optimizing prices. And that could get smarter and smarter over time. And so to do that, you need a lot of data. And so that kind of helped refine our, our ICP more in that we needed to look at customers who had large volumes of transactions, so large amount of customers. And that's tr yeah, traditionally found either in the B2C space, so B2C subscriptions, or on like the high volume B2B, like PLG motion type of large B2B companies. Um, and so that's really where like the focus came in and that's really what we've kind of been doing so far. Okay, yeah, that completely makes sense. So uh, now you're working with like huge names like Linktree and Scrimba, which is super exciting. And um, has working with these huge companies changed in any way your roadmap, your messaging, the way you guys grow? How does it work for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, don't want to make too big of a statement, but I feel like at a, at a company of our size, anyone who says no is lying, right? Like you're dealing with massive companies who have needs and you want to keep those companies. They're paying you a lot of money. So yes, to a certain extent, you're going to obviously iterate on their requirements and their needs while then also trying to identify what are you telling me that I actually think most companies probably deal with that same problem. And plenty of features that we now have for all of our customers come from exactly those kinds of conversations. And so I think I do meet a lot of founders who say like, oh yeah, I have my vision for the product and like, that's what it's going to be. And 
generally I find them to be less successful than the founders who are very much willing to be flexible, work with their customers, see what value they need to be providing to make their customers be and excited about their product. And I think that's just part of the early stage. At a certain point, obviously, you have to draw the line, but especially at our age, I think it's it's very much about what needs are you not yet meeting and do you need to meet and how does that help you kind of evolve your product, evolve your product? Right, right. No, not talking to customers is, is a big mistake at any stage, but the early stage is definitely just crucial. But at the same time, you know, again, you having like Linktree as one of your customers, I mean, I think it's kind of difficult to just say, oh, you know, uh, we may not have this feature for you. Like how to just overcome this on one hand, the want and the need to execute on your vision uh, and at the same time, not be like completely afraid of losing this huge customer that that is, again, like you said, working with you, kind of like defining your roadmap and helping you grow the product. So where is the balance there? Yeah, I mean, I think it also, you know, there's a certain level of confidence you have to bring to the table and understand also, like, what is the value you're adding to the equation? I think we have the benefit that we're operating in a space that not everyone understands well. So if Linktree knew pricing perfectly, then they wouldn't really need us as much, right? But when they come to the table, half the conversations are, well, what should we do next? Like, what's the next area that we should focus on? And I think that's kind of the beauty of, of the relationship that we have as founders with our customers is that a lot of them don't just see us as a provider of a tool. They see us also as partners in this endeavor with them. And so it's, all right, well, we've done this now. What's the next thing we should be looking at, right? And I think because of that, we also have a very good voice in the conversation and it, it builds a really great relationship and trust with our customers. Yeah, I completely agree. I think, uh, yeah, you have to always remember as a founder that they have already trusted you uh, with being a, a tool that they chose, right? So they saw something in you. And especially if you're early stage, right? They, they, I think it takes some convincing to, to get a client like that. But yeah, okay. Thank you. Thank you for that answer. And I wanted to ask about one one more thing, like other companies that, that you're working with, because we had this conversation with one of the founders at SaaS Group. And he was like, there is this huge trend that we see that is really fascinating. Like last year, out of like 10, 15 biggest customers, maybe one was AI. And now out of 10, there is six. So like 60% of your biggest customers are AI companies or like companies that have some part uh, of AI integrated. And obviously it's a challenge for them to, to see how it's going to work. But for you, I guess, since you're working with data, and you need that data to to analyze and uh, you know offer how to monetize their product properly. Is there enough data to work with for these companies? Like how to uh, how to price those products, and what are the challenges and like the considerations that founders of those companies should go through to really nail their pricing? Yeah, I mean, pricing AI is a really interesting conversation right now because. It's very different than most other SaaS kind of functionality because it has a cost, like a very real cost. And it is a linear cost. So most, like most costs in SaaS are hosting costs, right? And so the assumption being is that the more customers we have, we kind of achieve economies of scale. And so we don't worry about the cost early on because we know it'll get cheaper. And there is, you know, reason to believe that is the case with AI as well. But right now, 
it's basically by prompt, right? Like the more you're prompting, the more expensive it gets to you as the provider of it, right? So there is just an inherent cost. And that's why we're seeing a lot of different models where it's either credit-based or there are limits of usage or yada, yada, yada. And so uh, it is a common conversation piece with, with founders and with, with other companies, just on, you know, where do they start? And I think that there isn't yet a lot of great data. And I think as we start to collect data, a whole new version of it comes out because it's still evolving so quickly that completely changes the model. I think every company has their own way of kind of thinking about AI, thinking about the value that it adds, whether it's like the very obvious, like in your face, like, hey, we have a chat interface that uses AI, like, all right, or we generate text or images, okay. But then you have a lot of really cool behind the scenes applications that like from a customer standpoint, you might not even realize is being driven by AI. Right? Like there's a lot of really cool like automation companies that are generating entire workflows for you automatically or behind the scenes and you don't realize that that's happening. So in those cases, like how do you monetize that, right? And so I think partially you can get back to the core aspect of how do you monetize anything, which is you need to figure out what it's worth to a customer, what value are you providing and driving, and then how do you figure out how to quantify that? Um and that's no different with AI. I think the, the thing that is slightly different with AI is just that now you actually have to care about the cost. And kind of the last note on it is that most of the time people worry about what to charge. So like what dollar number or what pounds, whatever, like do I have to put on this thing? And, you know, my old firm, myself included, would always say how you charge is oftentimes more important than what you charge. So, you know, what is your metric? What value are you exchanging for a price kind of thing? Uh, I would argue that's even more important now with AI. How you think about charging for it, whether it's like a license-based fee additionally for that. So like what Notion does, right? You pick your Notion plan and then you add additionally like AI access per person, right? Or whether it's a credit-based fee like Dropbox is doing or whatever, right? Like there are different models you can choose from. And I think figuring that out is probably the more important thing right now. Yeah, because that's really tricky. That's really tricky right now. Sure, yeah, absolutely. All right, thank you. And uh, I wanted to also ask, obviously, about uh, the growth of Coralie, right? How, uh, how you're bringing it out into the world. What are your growth channels? And what is, um, I forgot the name, the pricing lounge? Yes. Um... So our growth channels have been interesting because we've been around for, you know, two-ish years and we really haven't, like, it's been a very much technically focused organization. And it's really been over the last, like, maybe six or so months that we've been starting to actually go out into the world, <laughs> whether that's through going to conferences, doing webinars, hosting our own little things here and there, partnering with people, trying to publish more content and kind of help educate the market. So that's been very recent and we're still very much, you know, experimenting with that ourselves. And so that's been super interesting just in terms of like what marketing channels are good for our topic, right? Because you kind of have to customize it based on the business. But one of the things that we found to be super interesting is, is the pricing lounge, which is our expert community. So when I came out of consulting, one of the things I realized was that I had very much taken for granted that at any point, if I had a question or I wanted to like run something by someone, I had you know, a few hundred other pricing experts that I could just talk to because I was at a pricing firm. And so once I left, I was like, oh, that's actually not that common. And especially as I, you know, since, you know, one of the types of, of people we go to get feedback from 
on our product, our pricing experts and be like, you know, would you use this in this scenario here, pressure test this, blah, blah, blah. I would just, you know, you get into chatting and you'd be like, you know, what's your job like? What do you like it? And the amount of times people told me like, it's lonely was very depressing just because they're most of the time it's a team of one, right? Like they're the solo pricing person at their company. And because they're the only pricing expert at their company, they can't have doubt. Like they have to know the answer. They always have to be confident. They can't be asking questions because one, who are they going to ask? And two, like the trust gone for better or for worse. So um, my thought was like, well, cool. I know a bunch of these people. Like, let me just pull them all together and give us kind of, a, for lack of a better phrase, a safe space to talk where like, if you have a question or if you just got asked to try something new, you've never done it. You don't want to look like an idiot. Here's a bunch of people who someone probably has tried it before and can give you some feedback, right? So that was kind of the idea. Uh, it blew up a lot faster than we expected. So we have, you know, like 200 something people now, all basically pricing leaders from anywhere from HubSpot, Salesforce, Netflix, Disney, uh, Amplitude, GitLab. Like it's a lot of companies at this point, And it's really, really fascinating. Uh, just seeing the problems people are dealing with on a daily basis. It's also great just like seeing people help each other out um, and kind of dig through that. We've started to develop a job board where like people are trying to cross hire and things like that, which is cool. We started doing monthly events earlier this year, which has been really fun, which is like from a member of the community for the community, like presenting on a very niche topic or on like a big learning of a recent thing that they did, yada, yada. So that's been really, really cool. We started opening those up to the kind of larger public, which has been cool. Um, so yeah, it's been like we have in December, we're going to have the head of monetization from Snowflake talk about like their model and how they came up with it and how they're thinking through it. So like these are cool people and cool sessions and really cool to kind of see them give back. And from our end, it's also great because it's a great community for us to test new ideas of our own product, right? It's, you know, how, are we thinking about this in all the right ways? Would your company ever use this? Why not? Et cetera. And so that's been, you know, selfishly great. But it's also just been really cool to see all these people come together. So it's been, yeah, it's been really fun. This episode is sponsored by Rewardful.com. Looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business? Consider adding an affiliate program. Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage, and scale for SaaS companies. Log your customer acquisition cost and only pay affiliates based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. Building a successful affiliate program can be a little bit intimidating figuring out where to get started. That's where Rewardful has taken what they've observed from their most successful customers' affiliate programs and distilled that into an exclusive online course. The exciting part? Their affiliate marketing course is absolutely free. And by joining the waitlist today, you'll get early access to it as soon as it goes live. Join the waitlist at rewardful.com slash course, rewardful.com slash course, and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers. Absolutely. And I mean, it, it also builds trust for you, for the customers, because if you bring, you know, people from all these companies, it means that they trust you. So, that, well, it just, yeah, it builds up and, and it's great. And this is exactly what we started doing as well. First, there was a podcast and then kind of it grew to uh, AMAs where we also bring some external experts and SaaS and just, just share knowledge because this is our 
motto, I would say, right? We, we buy companies and we make sure that, yeah, these, they're standalone products, but we, we want them to know what's going on. We want to, them to share knowledge because like someone has bigger teams and somebody is just like a bit further along and it would benefit them. So yeah, I, I completely agree. It's a great strategy. All right. And since we started talking about community, right, there is SaaS talk and the, we were introduced by, by Michael from SWAT, SWAT.io. And you started saying that, you know, being a monetization expert in the company sometimes feels lonely. Well, being a founder sometimes feels lonely too. So even if you have a co-founder, like everyone says, oh, if you're a solo founder, then, you know, you stay in your bubble. I think it's as easy to stay in your bubble with a co-founder too. Uh, but yeah, how does it work for you with the community, with going to these events? Like, what are you getting out of it? Uh, because yeah, obviously it is promoting the product and like looking for potential customers, but it's also just communicating with others who are at that stage or maybe one step further. So yeah, how did you, how did you start going, uh, to these events and integrating into like a broader SaaS community? Yeah, no, it's, I mean, the SaaS talk kind of family, I call them at this point has just been <laughs> incredible for us. And I think a big part of that is like my co-founder is is based out of London. And so mm -hmm. I kind of operate mostly in the US. He operates mostly in, in the UK and Europe. And I think because of that, we have like our own communities and our own things that we're kind of a part of. I mean, we are a YC company. So like he obviously had that experience here. But I think I was really looking for a different set of experience and a different group to learn from. And the reason for that is that, you know, I'm in California, I'm on the West Coast, venture-backed startups are basically what you find here. It's very VC heavy. And don't get me wrong, we've taken VC money, we love our VCs, like we have no problems there. But the market, the way it is today, you have to be able to do a whole lot more with a whole lot less. And you know who's really good at that? Bootstrapped companies. Companies that don't have outside money and have to do everything themselves and have to raise, like, just, they have to be profitable to grow their company. And that's really important right now, where capital is very hard to get. And so that's the whole thing behind SaaS software. Like, most of their founders are bootstrapped, not venture-backed. And I was like, that seems like a great community to learn from. There's a bunch of 50-plus million ARR companies that are bootstrapped. And like, I want to learn those tricks because if I can help grow our company in a very sustainable way, but still grow it quickly, that doesn't seem like a bad idea, especially now. So that was the original reason to kind of get more involved with that community. And then they were starting to get involved more in the US. And I was like, oh, hey, like maybe let's talk about it. So when they had their first, uh, the inaugural uh, Austin conference this year, I've been talking with the team and they say like, hey, we're doing a pitch competition. You should come to it. So I did by some random fortune, wound up winning. And that was obviously an incredible experience. Um, but then I wound up going to Sastock Dublin just recently, like a couple weeks ago, um, joining together with a lot of the other kind of like close group of founders there, which has also just been an incredible experience and learning from all of them, meeting them. And I think, again, I, I find myself very lucky in the, the area that I've chosen to focus and we as a company have focused on, right? Like monetization, especially for founders, is a very founder-heavy topic early on. 
right? Like found it's their product. They have an opinion on how you're going to charge for it. And so talking to founders is actually a pretty useful to get a sense of like how they think about it. What are their worries? And so that's been great for us. And it's also just been great to make friends of other companies that have a really different background and are operating in really different spaces. So yeah, the SaaS community has been incredible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm interviewing Alex, the founder, next week, I guess. Nice. And yeah, a lot of, especially like since SaaS talk, all the podcasts that, that I shot were like, oh, we went there and it was so great. So <laughs> that's a great feedback, right, for such a conference. But back to like journey from bootstrap companies, while, you know, you took some VC money, I think that's incredible because also when, when you took some VC money, there is absolutely no way like getting out of pricing your your product like right this moment because well you have to return that money right but when you're when you're bootstrapped i think a lot of founders are just like holding on like what is the price that we're going to to put there are people going to pay us are we just going to offer free version for years and years and then just say oh could you maybe pay for it so a lot of bootstrap founders are like very i guess shy to, to put a price tag on their product like what was your what is your experience like what what is the talking about what is the trend there so yeah, i have to say my experience is the opposite i think when you have a venture-backed company and they're sitting on a pile of money generating more money is less important to them you know, they've obviously pitched their product and given a monetization model and like, we have a way of charging, but we're not going to charge for the next two years because we just want to acquire a bunch of customers. And they can because they don't have to make any money, theoretically, right? Like all they have to be able, it used to be, I should say, before we kind of had a complete market change, it used to be that you just had to be able to show that I could start making money at any time. And that was enough, right? You just had to have the concept there. But realistically, people only cared about getting customers in the door. And pricing oftentimes is a barrier to that. So people would just make it free or whatever. Um, with bootstrapping, you don't have that option. You have to make money off of your customers to continue to grow and provide your product. So like your monetization model has to be one good and it has to basically kick in immediately. And so the big thing is like most bootstrap founders will start part time, right? Like they'll have an idea, they have a day job and they'll work on it and they'll start to grow their company in, in their spare time. Until it gets to a point where they're like, all right, I need to kind of commit to this to really start making it something. And maybe they're making a little bit of money and then they start working to scale it, right? But yeah, I think that's, that was a, I talked to a lot of founders who have kind of like jumped off the ledge, quit their job, had started really dedicating to their venture full time. And pricing is a huge conversation because they're like, cool, this is my only source of income. So if the company doesn't make money, I don't make money. I have bills, like need to make some money here. So yeah, it's definitely a huge conversation. And again, that's kind of what I what I liken back to now, even on the venture back side, like one, you're going to raise less money, most likely. And two, that money has to last you a whole lot longer. And a lot of those strategies around like, well, how do you bootstrap stuff? How do you do more with less are just way more important today than they were two years ago. And so, yeah, I think my, my venture backed friends and fellows should, uh, you should definitely be looking at some of those bootstrap companies and taking a page out of their book because it, it will help a lot of us survive a whole lot longer. Okay, interesting. Thank you. Well, yeah, I think I had both, like, again, on this podcast, there were founders that were bootstrapping a free product 
for a couple of years and I don't know how they're doing it. Mm. And and then they, there were those that were like, oh, we haven't even started building, but we have already made some money. So, but yeah, it's really interesting what, what, yeah, what you were saying. I think now with the market, with the economic situation, it's just, you have to, yeah, you have to do more with less and just be, be a little scrapper. That's why when I saw the pricing lounge, I was like, oh, that's perfect. Like that's, and I knew that you raised funds and I was like, but that's, you know, VC funded companies rarely do that at this like early stage, like do something scrappier than just, you know, blow up a product and like buy Google ads. But uh, yeah, okay. So let's talk monetization, all right? What are the, the best practices that, that you could share? What are the practices that you used to price Coralie? Do we have enough time? Let's see. Um, so when it comes to kind of figuring out your own monetization, I think the biggest thing that it always comes down to is you are providing a service product to a customer. If you're doing a good job, that customer thinks that that product and service is valuable. Now that value is then needing to be shared. They're going to get some value and they're going to give you some value in return in the form of currency, ideally. And so figuring out what that balance is, is tricky. And generally, you know, you'll have different people talk about it in different ways, but the different levers that you have to play with is you have, you know, your actual price, obviously, then you have your packaging, how you're structuring your product and putting it out into the market. You have your metric or model, which is really like the economics behind how you're charging and kind of the combination of those three is what you're really trying to optimize with as you're thinking through your kind of major go-to-market metrics. So like your acquisition, your monetization, and your retention. Those are the things you're basically trying to constantly play with, right? Because if you want to acquire a whole bunch of people, well, just make your product free. Super easy, right? But you're, you know, they're not paying anything. So do they have a big reason to stay with you? Maybe not. So a bunch of people will like use you for a bit and then churn, right? Uh, You're definitely not monetizing if your product's free. So you have a kind of, this balance that you just strike. If you're too expensive, well, people have a lot of skin in the game, so they're probably going to use your product. Maybe they'll stick around. Maybe they'll turn because you're too much of their budget. Uh, you're not going to acquire a lot of people because barrier to entry is high. So like, there's all these things you kind of have to, to work with and figure out. But I think the best practice really is figure out what value you're providing to your customer. Find a way to quantify that. And that can be through interviews. It can be through doing research. It can be through just running an experiment with like, what if I price it as this? See what that does, right? Kind of your standard elasticity type of experimentation of of demand or on demand. Um, And then from a packaging standpoint and a metric standpoint, it's so dependent on the product. I mean, a lot of people will just tell you like, just do a good, better, best because that's tried and true. And like, sure, I'd say like 80% of SaaS companies probably have some form of a good, better, best. That is valid. But there are a lot of other pricing kind of packaging structures out there. Just as much with the metric, right? Like the entire world of SaaS used to be license-based. And now we have about 500 different metrics out there. So it, it's it's getting complicated. It's gotten complicated over the last like five years or so. And that is good. It provides more variability. And there's a lot of things people can play with. But yeah, you just kind of have to figure out what works for you. But I think the biggest, really the only rule is just don't get away from the customer right? Like what value are you providing to them? How can you scale that value? And then how do you appropriately monetize it in return? Okay. That's brilliant. Okay. Thank you. So, uh, I just have a couple more questions. Those are the ones that everyone gets. 
So the first is what has so far been the biggest win and the biggest failure for Coralie or maybe for you as a founder? The, the, the biggest win I think for us was, and there's a, there's some pretty cool wins coming that I, I can't talk about just yet. So I'll give the, the acceptable answer for right now, but uh, probably the biggest win so far has been seeing companies like Linktree, Skillshare, Scrimba really get value out of our product. I think that's like, because, you know, as a founder, you have to believe in your product success and the value that it provides. And then there's the theoretical concept of like, well, I know it logically should provide value, but then actually seeing on your customer's revenue how much you've impacted and what you've driven for them, it's pretty powerful. And that's, I think, like, that's pretty much the big, biggest win you can get as a founder is that like we've created something that creates real value. And I think kind of the, the opposite side of that, the, I don't know if I want to call it the biggest loss, but the biggest downside I think has just been for me is really, I find the remote work really hard. Like I, I think that like a really early stage startup, it lives and dies by the passion of the people that are working there. And I think that. I noticed such a difference when like when we get together and we're in a room working, the output, the efficiency, the energy, the morale is just a million times higher than when we're not. And I think I am a very like social creature. I thrive on being with other people with that energy. And, you know, not everyone's like that. Totally fine. Right. And, you know, we were born during the pandemic. So like, Everyone was everywhere, but you know, I'm the only person in the U S right. We have someone in Taiwan. We have someone in India. We have someone in the UK. We have someone in Spain and Poland, like all over the place. So, you know, even just ignoring the time zone craziness that that creates, it's tough. Right. And I think that I long, I long for the days whenever we get together, it's just the energy there is just so powerful. And that's the hardest thing for me, I think. Okay, I, I I have to say thank you for saying that because like remote is I mean I'm kind of like native remote, but I love when we get together. Like we we just had our retreat a couple of months ago, and I still I think I'm still like riding that wave of excitement, and <laughs> just like oh my god, we could just like come downstairs from our rooms and like have coffee and have breakfast and discuss and like do our meetups and like just bounce ideas and it was great and i'm not saying like i'm also a very social person and i'm also the only one in vietnam <laughs> but um yeah maybe maybe not everyone's like that but just i think hybrid is is perfect would be perfect um i mean being just um exposed to the incredible pool of talent uh, when you're remote is great. I mean, the people that you can mm -hmm. find, wow. But yeah, getting together is just like the next level of uh, engagement and just drive and everything. Totally. And I will say like, it, it's the talent thing I really feel like is a massive game changer. Like, I, I think that there's for such a long time, there's been this concept of like, oh, you know, like Bay Area engineers are the, are the best and blah, blah, blah. And like, we have some absolutely insanely good engineers and they are from all different parts, all different walks of life. 
And it is just really cool to know that that is out there and to be able to have access to that now. I think that is something I truly do not take for granted. And I think that's a big part of the culture of how we build and how we hire is that, you know, we don't focus on where else have you worked? Where did you go to school? Right. It's purely like, what is your true ability and your motivation? And that is just, that is hard to beat. So I will say that remote has really opened a lot of doors for that. That's true. All right. And well, the last question is also kind of usual. Could you share a hack? And uh, I guess in, in your case, it would make sense to ask for like a monetization hack. Like if you are, I don't know, a company that has never maybe changed your prices because you grandfathered all your customers, you thought, oh, you know, we're doing quite okay. And now you're like, I want to do that, maybe start because, you know, I'm growing, blah, blah, blah. So what is the best way to go in there? Is there a hack? Just try it. I know that sounds really simple, but I think most people, you know, if you're familiar with the whole Amazon concept of the one-way versus two-way door decision-making, right? I think a lot of people think of price changes as a one-way door and that, yeah, sure. If you're going to blanket change your price for every single new and existing customer, then yes, that's probably not going to end well if you don't have a lot of thought behind it. But there's no reason you can't take a small sample of new customers and just try a new price with them and see how it goes. Like there are very few companies that have such brand kind of entity around them that they have to be that careful. Like if you're Netflix, yeah, you change your price. It's literal worldwide news that Netflix is changing their price. There are very few companies that are like that. Like most companies can get away with, let's pick a pilot market where it's, you know, one of our tier two markets, for instance, and we try on 10% of new customers out of that space, a new price. See how they respond, right? Like what is the absolute worst that's going to happen, right? You're trialing new things on your product all the time. You're trialing new marketing landing pages all the time. There's so many things that we have zero thought on just trying something new. I think we need to get over the fact that like pricing is the sacred thing that we can't touch. Like the biggest question we always get is, well, what if like two different customers see two different prices and they talk? And it's like, we have customers who have tens of millions of customers. It doesn't come up. It just doesn't come up. So does it happen? I'm sure it happens, but no one really says anything. No one complains. It's not that big of a deal. Again, I'm not saying that it can't be and that there are some companies that definitely have to be careful for sure, but don't overthink it. Just try it. Perfect. Yeah, I think it's a good one. All right. Well, thank you for sharing it and thank you for telling your story and all the, you know, the wisdom behind pricing. I think uh, a lot of people are going to to love it because again, pricing is just like a oh my god, are we going to do this or better not not touch it for the next 10 years kind of situation. So, thank you for you know, just putting, I think, a lot of founders at ease or at least like giving them hope that uh, this can be done. So, yeah, thank you so much for uh, for being here. And I'm excited to see where you guys are going to be next year and uh, maybe do it again sometime. Sounds like a plan. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. Anytime. And take care. That was yet another awesome conversation on SaaS Unbound. We're always looking for new guests to share their experiences. We mostly talk with bootstrapped SaaS founders. And if you're one, reach out to me directly at anna at or find me on LinkedIn. 
If you're not bootstrapped or even not SaaS but have a great story to tell, we want to hear from you too. And obviously, SaaS Unbound wouldn't be possible without the SaaS Group, a founder-friendly private equity company that buys awesome businesses that people love to take them to even greater success. If you're thinking about selling your company or just exploring your options, feel free to visit saas.group, fill in the form, and expect a response in under 24 hours.